This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. I want to speak about this month was somebody who was Bishaita, um, considered the God Lador, um, and that was a musical Honor Spector. Honor Spector was born in 1817. Um, 1816, uh, and, the eighth, um, and he was Nifta in 1896, and Chofal Fader, that's his yard site. Um, he was known, in other words, his last for a long time was Kovna, which was the capital, eventually the capital of Lithuania, and he was the one everyone wrote uh, in Shilas and Shuvas from the whole world, um, and he was in, in Russian Lithuanian Jewry in the latter part of the 1800s. He was the Galador. He 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 was the Paisik Achron. He was the one that was involved in every public Indian and was extraordinarily stormy Kufa and extraordinarily difficult Kufa. Before we speak about him, first of all, my sources, which I think is always very important to mention, because. It's just the, the habit that storybooks are not worth much. Um, you need to know wh- where a person got his material from. So, the first source, which is the, mo- the one used by most historians, is a series of memoirs called Zichron Yaakov. Zichron Yaakov was written by Yaakov Lifshitz. He was his secretary in Kovna. He wrote three volume um, memoirs which um, has now been republished as one volume. It's in Hebrew. I don't think it's been translated in English. It's an incredible um, ozer of ideas and <coughs> facts. The tkufas. It's his own. It, he, he writes about that whole tkufa. Um, there is it, 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 this Rabbi Yaakov Lifshitz was um, a very very fiery speaker of macher of kacha. He was his. He was the Rabbi Yisrochana's secretary. His great-great-grandson, I guess apropos, puts out the English Yatet. Rapinkas Lifshitz is a great-great-grandson of that of Lifshitz. Um, the people have a little bit of hesitation about his history for two or three reasons. First of all, he was a political person and he had somewhat of an agenda. And sometimes he left out people he didn't particularly care for. Um, there are sometimes he, he writes about things that were before his Kufa. So, th- th- you know, they take it a little bit on... on um, not clear that his sources were, you know, anything that he wrote about specifically that he experienced, people generally consider as very reliable, but they also feel not always to give a complete picture because he was, he was a political per- type of personality. Um, they also um, don't always trust the things that he writes about that he heard from other people that was there that, that have written before. He also put out a specific biography of Yitzchak Hanan called Toldos Yitzchak. Those are two very important sources. There is Rebbe Yitzchak letters, two volumes of which have been put out, and uh, we have that, we have Nishiva, that obviously is good. His chuvis reflects some of the points we're going to talk about, even though a lot of it didn't have to do with halachic chuvis. Um, what I think is an extremely, somebody put out a biography of his, but uh, in recently Hebrew, I don't know, the last 10 years or so, I'm, I'm, I don't. I find some parts of it a little bit. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's 
a much better one is in the Mechon Yerushalayim's um, they put out Rabbi Yitzchakonis Chuvis that he himself had not published, they put out a big volume they have a Mavo with, with a history a biography of his that's really excellent well footnoted well put, to, really very clear that the person is, is out to set the facts down, very clear way very well, and I found that to be the best of all the sources that I saw he drew, he drew draws on the primary sources writes exactly where he took it from and puts it in a, in a way that's very misudder and, and gives a good idea of things before we speak about his life, I want to speak about the Tkufa, because the Tkufa and its Nisyonos were extremely important in understanding um, what he went through and understanding the um, uh, understanding the um, obstacles and Nisyonos that he had. The um, there were three major three or four major events uh, or and I'd say more um, sort of things that were happening um, in his lifetime. The first one started a little bit before his lifetime. Poland and Lithuania were a grand duchy, they were like sort of a country, big country, considered one of the big countries in Europe. In the end of the 1700s, 1790s, um, Russia's appetite was whetted and it began slicing off pieces and basically dismembered uh, Lithuania, Poland, um, together with Prussia and Austria. They each cut up pieces and each one took chunks of it for themselves. So that by the end of the 1790s, um, a big chunk of Lithuania, um, Poland, um, had been absorbed as some sort of entity in the Russian Empire. It's very important because that, that leads to the next problem. Um, in 1825, the Tsar, that the, the, the Russian Tsar was Nicholas, became Nicholas I. The one preceding was Alexander, this was Nicholas I. Nicholas I was, um, was a, 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 a Russia, Marusha. there's no, no other way to describe him. Um, even by the Goyesh accounts, he was considered to be technically competent, but horrendously regressive person in the areas of human rights, etc. And since the Jews are Nicaraguan, so th those rights were, were even worse trampled. He was, he was not happy with the fact that when he swallowed up a big chunk of Poland and Lithuania, he got Jews in it. That was, that was the one piece of it that those were the bones that had to be spit out. So he started making Xeris one after the other, and uh, and and the Xeris had there were two purposes. One was to choke them in Gashmias, and one was to destroy them in Ruchnias. Um, he made the the uh, that they can't move out of certain very very defined <coughs> provinces. What was called the Pale. They had to live in certain areas. They couldn't engage in certain work. Um, they couldn't live close to here, they couldn't do this. Very, very rough Xeris. Um, uh, um, that was one thing that he did. The second thing that he did was, and this was somewhat with the help, of we'll speak about this, of the Maskilim, he made Xera about dress, um, try to close down Hadarim, um, it tried to do all sorts of different things 
to force the Jews to become Russians and Christians and so on. A lot of, lot of xeris along those lines. Censorship introduced, and the worst, most the worst of all, was the Cantonist xeris, which was he, he Jews had to serve in the Russian army for 25 years on a certain percentage. You know, X amount had to serve 25 years. They would take him away sometimes at the age of eight or nine, and the 25 years didn't start at eight or nine. It started at 18. But for eight or nine, they gave eight from the age of eight or nine, they gave him over. To, to Russian peasants to sort of prep them for for, for the military, it, it was horrendous. Um, destroyed. First of all, most of the kids were killed on the way. Most of the kids couldn't survive the conditions they had for them, and and those few that survived, the vast majority became goyim. Horrendous gzera. The Yemachshmoi he joins the proud tradition of Russian czars and post-Russian czars that were that that were really uh, horrendous. That was one thing that was that sets that's the beginning of that tkufa. In the middle of the tkufa, you know, starting at the middle of the 1800s, we had spoken about Daskola last time in Hungary. Daskola in Poland, Lithuania, and Russia took on a different format. These people wanted a, whereas we spoke about Hungary and Germany as being very concerned with the ceremony. In the synagogues and so on, they had a very different kivun. They wanted an enlightened people, and the two or three things that they focused on was to first of all they started publishing tremendous newspapers, periodicals, and attacking constantly rabbonim, yeshivas, um, etc., and tons and tons of publications. They tried to close down the yeshivas, the succeeding closing Volozhin at the end of the century, of that century. And they tried very hard to open up um, semin- r- rabbinical seminaries that, w- that would produce a very enlightened product. There was a second uh, thrust. And a third one was they made xeris that the Malamdim, that, that the Malamdim couldn't teach unless they had degrees. Being that Muslim, they have even not the public school to school to start with. Getting a degree was on the difficult side. It was before they could get in on online. They, they so it was, it was very difficult for a malama to have degrees. And th- those were three ways in which they um, in which they tried to um, to destroy Yiddishkeit and Ruchnis sense. They they were fighting the darkness. Of the of the fanatical old-fashioned Jew and want to bring enlightenment. That was a second. That was m- in the middle of the century, moving towards the end of the century, and finally, a third phase was um, in in it, it was pogroms that started in 1881. What happened was the the, the Tsar um, Alexander II, who was more decent than Nicholas, and he he can't he was he got rid of a lot of those xeris. Um, he was killed. He was assassinated, and immediately, they the suspicion was they accused Jews of doing it. Um, the Jews, um, they they even when when they caught them, it, they were not Jewish. One of them claimed that he was a Jew, and then it was found out it was Shekhar Bachazov. But. A wave of pogroms started in 1881. Um, in Ivrit, they were codenamed Sufos Banegev because it was a code word to get a, 
get by the censor and it was th these pogroms um, destroyed uh, I think 150 kahillas horrendous um, they then sort of the government was very very they said it was the Jews it was the Jewish it was the fault of the Jews that these pogroms happened because they choked everyone else out of business and they therefore made laws to further curtail Jewish activities. Jews couldn't own bars, they couldn't work for the government, they couldn't do post office, they couldn't this, that, and that, and so on and so forth. What happened was, in, it, it, it prompted a huge wave of emigration out of Russia. Probably a quarter of the Jews of Russia, or what was called Russia time, left. Russians were very upset about that also. You know, they, they, it's hard to satisfy Russians, so they didn't want the Jews, they didn't want them to leave. But the vast majority, many of them, almost a quarter, something like two million, left to mostly to America. Those were the three, I guess, um, historical backgrounds to his tkufa. We'll go back to Rabbi Yitzchokhanan now. Rabbi Yitzchokhanan um, was, as a child, he was known as he was very bright. Um, his hasmada was incredible. He got married at the age of 13 at Bar Mitzvah. Um, I, it was not uncommon. And he was, I mean, somebody saw his potentials and somebody and hopped him. He learned by Rev. Um, Rev. Benjamin Diskin. Rev. Benjamin Diskin was, I'm sure you all heard of Rabbi Shulay Diskin, who was the Rabbi Yishlaim. This was his father. He was a Goyen Olam. Rev. Yitzchak learned by him. And he was together with Rev. Um, he was together with his Rev. Sholeim. They were friends. They learned together. Um, his mother was incredible. And for the next, until um, he was about 36 or so, he was a Rav in a small series of towns and tremendous, tremendous deprivation. His salary wasn't. Um, his, his salary was n not only enough to cover bare minimum and he told somebody you know his wife would sometimes come crying that they're hungry she and the kids are hungry and he, he would just he, he would just bury himself in the he couldn't bear it there's no itza. there's nothing else he could do um, he's many years later when he got his Rabbanis Sukhavna it was very Bukhavadik and you know, he, it, was a, it was a major Rabbanis with a lot of money and covered and his wife cynically, sarcastically remarked, when we finally have money to buy food, we no longer have teeth to eat them with. That was the way <coughs> he described that situation. But he lived with tremendous deprivation, and his hasmada was incredible, and even in his later years, when he was inundated with issues and problems of Kal Yisrael, he was always able to think and learning while he was talking to people and so on. He would he would um, be half of himself would be thinking, the other half would be almost totally involved with the people. And he would be you know he would finish talking with somebody, and then would run to write down all the chidushim that he thought of Bishasmais and so on. He was a rav in many small towns for a whole bunch of years, from the age of twenty until about thirty six. Um, and then he became rav of Navardic, which was a major city. From the age of 36 till his late 40s, in which time became Rav of Kovna. In Kovna, once he became Rav in Kovna, when he was a Rav in Navardic, people started sending him shadows from all over. When he became the Rav of Kovna, 
he became the this central address for sh the most difficult shalos in the entire world, and he um, was the manigador, and everything important, everything difficult, every issue came his way. Let's talk about some <coughs> some of the um, First of all, he wrote um, he wrote the he published um, three or four sfarim with a few halakim, that's called Ber Yitzchak, Ein Yitzchak, um, there's Nachal um, Yitzchak, there was Yitzchak with something about it, he started Be'er because of Shetavis, they're either Bi'ur Mashuch Ma'aruch or Nesechtis, or Tshuvis. He was most known for his Tshuvis on Agunis. His Tshuvis on Agunis, he, he, he was most nefesh to be Mater Agunos, Somebody wrote about his chuvas that he counted all his chuvas in his farim. I think there were well over 71 of his farim, and only one that he couldn't find a heter for. But the Tehrim were not off the cuff. There are chuvas there are that have 102 sections. And he didn't just matter, you know, like, this happens and that happened. He, he was oimir on Yesaidis and Shas and he took of tremendous chidushim in the learning and he proved it and built it and made, you know he, he, he wrote each piece each tshuva was not only a specific tshuva it had in a lot of Yesodas that could be used in other places um, it, it, especially the, the main problem for many of the of, of it was Mayish and Osof people who went on ships and ships drowned and they and now what do you do? It's my Shalom safe. Secondly, people disappeared. There are two stories of many which about his Syatir Shmain Hetagunis. Not everyone was Mikabal's Psakim. And people were sometimes other Rabban felt he was being makled too much. So there's one story written, um, and again this is reliable, this is written for people at the time. Two stories, fascinating stories. One was um, somebody, he was he, he was mad to somebody, and was it was he went out on a limb. It required a lot, a lot of seifim to be mad to it. And a rav came, and rabbanim came. They were upset. They complained. They told him they think it's not right. And a short couple later, they found the body of that person. Some miraculous way, um, they they uncovered him. Whatever had happened to him, and and it confirmed it. That's one story about a Seltish Maya. The other one was there was a woman who asked for Heta and he didn't have one. And she came and sat by him and cried by his doorstep. And she sat and he said, You know, you write letters for everybody for me now. She didn't know what a chuva was. And he, and, and he would look and he was he was very pressed. And he and he couldn't he said, I don't know, I can't find a heta. Just doesn't just don't have the right nekudis. And they found the husband um, a long time later living in some village in Spain. He was found, and people saw in it a tremendous yata Maya that he had um, been able to, uh, you know, some somewhere in yata Maya that he wouldn't be mapped to the one person whose husband was actually not dead. So his big koach was, in his big nesugi was at Argunis. He. Um, before he died, he was laying on his deathbed. 
he, he was a few days away from dying. He, he, he was dying and he was a few days away from death. He reached into his, he told his, he was in pain, and then he told his Gabbai, you know, I have an Aguna waiting. And he pulled out of his pocket, somebody had written him a Shiloh, and he, and he looked at it and he tried desperately to find a hat. He couldn't, he fell asleep. Now and a half later he got up, he washed Negovasa and said, Bersatari, and he said, I have it. It's a carbon asana on your bumis. Get me your bumis. And the person told him, Yo, your matzah is precarious. He said, I must do it. And he found the carbon asana they was looking for and wrote a head to build around the carbon asana. That was his Mrs. Nefesh for Hetar Kunis. Incredible. Some of the other inyanim <coughs> that he was involved in, I guess, in, in, in chuvis and things of that nature, um, one was the Hetamachir of Shemitah. Now, what's interesting is the um, he was a rough, and as such, he needed sometimes to, to if he could be matter to be matter. He he didn't have the privilege of asking totally. Didn't have the privilege of being matter totally. He had to go with halacha and apply it. You know, it's Israel until the eighteen eighties um, when Jews came in, in wake of some of those pogroms. There was no Shaila of, um, there, there was no Shaila Shemitah, there were no Jews in their farms and so on. Then people came and started colonizing. And in 1888, 1889, 1889, I think, was the first Shemitah that were actually Jews there. And they wrote to him that if they're not going to work the land, they're going to starve and so on. He wrote a big chuva and he wrote a lot about it, and there was a lot of back and forth. Everyone quotes his tshuva selectively. If you take a look, his tshuva straddles a line. He was matter a hetemachira based on three or four nekudas. First of all, that the situation was generally tkoch nefeshtik. Two, that Jews would not do any melachas deirises or rabbanans. If it's a real pikuach nefesh, you'll be matted or abundant on it. If it's something that there's no choice, they couldn't hire an Arab or so, but that was condition. The hetem had to be drawn up by Rabbanim Yerushalayim, and it was only valid for that year. So you can quote the tshuva, the people who are machmer quote his tshuva that he, he, you know, he didn't want it to get het and they forced him and this and that, and it was this. The people who are makel say he was matted at the mechira. They don't mention. Um, the, all the conditions that he laid on it that, you know, might not even make it anything but that was something he was involved in, and that was um, a big sugi, that was the end of his life the next Shemitah was the year of his death he was again makel because of he felt the situation was dire and once again wrote it's, it's a very specific hat of a very specific situation, not to be learned from it any general heta whatsoever in any way. Another interesting thing that he was involved in was something called the Corfu Esrogim. Um, in the 1870s, the Jews would get, Esrogim did not grow in Europe, Europe's a cold climate, they would get Esrogim from a Greek place called Corfu. And the Esrogim were very nice. Now, um, the, 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 the merchants in Corfu started jacking up the prices slowly but surely year after year 
I'm told that they were a few times the price that that asked a few years before. So people were very incensed with that, and they also began to be motzilas that the murkovim. And then people started farming at Israel. They said they should buy from Israel instead, and it was a big, big to do. Um, some people used Dafka Karfu because they're, they're more Mechudas, some people Dafka didn't use Karfu, and so on. What the story that broke the camel's back was that in Karfu, there were Xeris against the Jews or pogroms against the Jews. Rabbi Yitzchak came out with an Iser for that year specifically. That that year, you can't use the Karfu as Rogim, and he said until um, they make the prices reasonable, and until they devoured the, the, the cautious of it. And when people asked him about it, he was, which, so which one is it? He was very, he didn't, you know, didn't say. But Agapanim, he, he put the weight of his position against Osorgan. That was another famous parish that he was involved in. Um, another fascinating thing that he was involved with, um, there were machlokas, many machlokas he got involved in to settle machlokas. One of them, when he was a young person in his 40s, in Volozhny Yeshiva, there was a big fight between the Rosh Yeshivas. And they, had, they brought in four Rabbanim to act as Borim. Rabbi Tzuchan was the youngest by far. There was a Yosef Pimer, and there was a David Tevel, and so on. And first of all, they invited him to say a Shir in Volozhny Yeshiva. It was an incredible honor for like Mihasim, for like Yuchadika people. He was a relatively young person. Um, the the Bachim and Volozhin sat up all night preparing kashes and they, whatever he was going to say that he was going to be attacked. He said his shear for three hours and you know they, they attacked him from all sides and he stood his ground and bested everybody in the yeshiva. Uh, it, it, when he finished he was almost exhausted and he told the yeshiva, you're fortunate that you're able to be in a makmakis where people we have such risk of the rice and so much going on. But I want to read a psak din of his. It's something, you know, sometimes it bothers when people say there never was such a thing, there never was this, there never was that. Um, I, I'd like to read a psak din of a lodging yeshiva between the, 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 the two rosh yeshivas were um, the Beis Alevi and the Nitziv. You can't get too big a people. And, and all the people write the history was that they themselves weren't actively involved in Machlokis. Where a lot of people stoked the flames, but but they were the, they were the by the plukta. So here is his um, his psakdin. Uh, uh, it's it's Reb David Hevela, it's Reb Yosef Pimer, it's Reb Zev Wolf, and Reb Itzkochanan. Signed the last, he's the youngest. Um, this is a um, it's an incredible document. It it you know it exists and and. Uh, it was in Tafrei Shutches, which is 1858. First of all, there should be shalom with everybody, and if anybody insults or attacks uh, one of Rabbanim, both Rabbanim have to throw him out of Yeshiva. Accepting Talmidim, the Nitziv himself has the only schus to do that. Um, but if a Rav sends a letter to Rabbi Shaber, he's the, the base Levi, he's the one who can um, accept him, but that's it. The Rabbanim have to learn in the yeshiva or in a room in the yeshiva, so they can always see what's doing in yeshiva. And um, and Bachim 
should daven dafk in yeshiva. So it's already a, from 1858 we have already a takana like that. When Mishalachim bring money for the yeshiva, they have to present it to both Rabbanim. They both make a cheshbin, they both write it down, and as soon as money comes to one of them, they have to tell the other one about it and write it down together. All the money will be in a closed box in the house of the Nitziv. There'll be two locks on it. One lock the Nitziv will have, one lock the Bezalev will have. And when you'll need money, the Bezalev will have to come, open it up, and then the Nitziv obviously can open it up, and then they'll write down in the Pincus. Um, everything, how to spend the money and everything will be by the Nitziv's by the Nitziv's um, uh, uh, say so, and the Nitziv is personally responsible to pay the expenses of Mishalachim. Um, they also um, will uh, he will have ten ruble, so they doesn't have to keep asking every time the uh, base Alevi for money and so on. But those will be sort of a, like a, a, a small expenses. Um, they can't fire any Mishalach unless both agree to fire them. Um, the the rabbits of, of, of Rebitzel of Lajan will get every week a stipend of four ruble. Um, the, um, the, the, the Nitziv will get 13 ruble, and Rebitzel is going to get 8 ruble. So it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, yeah, there were real fights. There were issues. Let, 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 they didn't fight, but there were issues. Had to run it, and, and they, they brought four up on him. They, they um, put it down. They also have here, in, this is in 1867, um, in Mir Yeshiva, there was an issue. Uh, Mir Yeshiva had been founded by uh, Rav Shmuel Tektinsky. His son, Rav Chaim Leib, took over. And then his son-in-law came along and demanded a chelk yeshiva and they write over here that they paskin that the yeshiva belongs to the son and after the son-in-law and he has no shechelk and so on. But this was real terrorist, this really happened and, and there were issues. He, um, so that was the, the, that was the machlokas in Velazhin. There was a, um, another whole area that he was involved in sort of two areas that really, um, I guess, dovetail with each other. In the f- fight with the Maskilim, so as we said, Europe was beginning to become, you know, Haskola was, was, was beginning to become a mass movement, and in, in Russia, Lithuania, that part of Poland, it focused on um, Haskola, Enlightenment, and so on. There were uh, uh, s- there were a group of Rabbanim that had a very canoistic approach to these Maskilim, like the Beis Alevi, and fire against them, didn't want to look at them, fought them bitterly, and so on. <laughs> Rabbi Yitzchak was, interestingly enough, very friendly <coughs> with everybody. In other words, he had a positive yachas with the Maskilim. And there was a mice, he was standing talking to a Rav, and Dr. F- and Feinberg walked in. Feinberg, I, think was, I don't know if he was a lawyer, he was a Chashra person, not from. And Rebbe Chonon spoke with him, uh, Rebbe Chonon spoke with him by Richos, and was very nice to him. When he left, people, the person standing with him made a face. And Rebbe Chonon said, you'll see. 
and then at some later date they needed somebody to go to the to the to the czar to the government and they went to Feinberg and Ritzelchan said you see you need these people you, you can't live on your own because these are the people that you need to intercede on your behalf so Ritzelchan A had a good relationship with them they respected him tremendously they wrote nice things about him as opposed to most other Rabbanim they wrote the nasty things about Ritzelchan they wrote very positive things possibly Ritzelchan because he was very known for his involvement, his good-heartedness, and involvement in Saris. There were fires in towns that would destroy towns. And Ribzokhan went and raised money. He, he, there was a place, Valkamir, a big city and a big place, and he went there and not only raised money, he had to form a committee to, to read out who deserves, who doesn't, who's laying false claims. He got into it and, and it was very mishtadl, and people appreciated that, and people appreciated how much he was there for everybody, he cared for everybody, every tsar and every tsar. So uh, together, and he was also a very diplomatic person that way. He wouldn't, so, so the Maskilim had pro forma a very, a very um, positive Isiasis team. They looked up, they blamed anything bad on the Yankov Lifshitz that we said before. Yankov Lifshitz was called the black agent. He, he was the head of the Lishka Shkhera Bekovna. He had the black, uh, um, you know, so, so they, they, he was more than happy to sling mud at them and they slung mud at him and uh, Rabbi Yitzchakon was sort of above the fray. There was one of the things that the, the um, in, in the Xeris of making these seminaries, Rabbi Yitzchakon was very against, without ifs, ands, and buts, and, the, you know, he fought it. And because of it, no, nobody good went to there. The Talmudim was so bad and so rotten. <coughs> they were Shkotsim, they really were, were, were fry, and they were laughing stock by everybody. I mean, the government supported it, but they were laughing stock, and, and nothing came of it. The, um, the, 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 the government tried also to to um, to to get involved with the Chadorim, like we said before, the Mlamdim would need uh, the the would need to uh, um, pay a what you call it would would need to get a degree and so on. Ritzelchanan fought all these things, but he did it with a lot of seichel. And here's one example. Now let's explain something. You had the from people. You had the Amoynam. You had the wealthy class of powerful people, who by and large, were masculine, and certainly not uh, fans of the of the of the from people. They lived in Saint Petersburg, which was the capital of Russia. Saint Petersburg was was the only Jews that lived in Saint Petersburg was if you were wealthy, powerful, etc. You were allowed to live there, and that's that was the hub of all, anything important in Russia. It was the capital. So one of the notables there, but the money was there. There was a fabulous wealth, Baron Ginsburg. There were many, many wealthy people there that you needed them. And they were the ones who could intercede in the government. And they were the ones who a lot of times made the trouble. It was a very, very, very tough relationship. He called, so he once called Nasif, one of these people called Nasif Rabbanim. I think Polyakov was his name. And he says, Rabbi Isai, I have tremendously good news for you. 
the, the, the Tsar in his kindness has agreed to undertake the Chadarim, he will be he will be now funding the Chadarim and will you know, he'll you don't have to worry about anything. He'll set the curriculum, he'll pay the rebeim, he won't mix into the Lumuri Kodesh, he'll just have to have some Lumuri Chol and this and that and so on and so forth. Basalevi got up and he said, We haven't discussed it, and I'm speaking on Das Atzmi, but uh, you know, he, and he said it's terrible, and don't kill us what you said, very, very sharp. The Lodger of Chaim Meisel's got up, and Rebelli Chaim Meisel got up, and he said, you know, um, he's right, he spoke on Das Atzmo, and we need to think about it. It's a very big issue, it's very important. Let's think about it. Rebbe Zavachanan's position was, it's going to cost the government 20 million ruble. I can't, he said, he, he can't believe the benevolence of the Tsar all of a sudden, that he's going to spend 20 million rubles on his Jews. Let's find out where the money is coming from, and let's stop it over there. They did some research, and um, and they and they found out that the money is coming from uh, 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 Baron Rothschild, I think it was, or uh, somebody in in France, who whatever reason he had for doing that. Once they convinced him to rescind his money, the government had no more interest in pursuing it. They weren't going to spend any money for it. They weren't willing to take Jewish money to spend for it, but they weren't not going to take. But that was a way in which Bechachma. He was able to realize where things are. Um, there was the next, uh, another chachma of his, again, where he realized in 1881, they, you know, they, these pogroms started. It was, it was, it, it was horrendous. And the maskilim decided they're going to go with a personal delegation to the, to the Tsar and to his ministers, Naher Nahin. Mr. Khan said, no good will come out of it. And sure enough, they went, and the Tsar said, it's your fault. You know, it's the Jews' fault, and this and that. Rabbi Yitzchak Hanan said, a smarter approach would be, he's going to, to, he's going to get Goyim in Chutzlaretz involved in, 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 um, in uh, shaming the Tsar. So what he did was, this was very dangerous. I mean, I mean, this was this was treason. You were you were you were getting foreign agents in his net. He wrote a letter to many rabbanim and and he wrote, "I'm sending you out a very important tshuva, a shaila to be done on. It's about a, an aguna that's a very big rachmanis that's trapped and can't get out of her trap, and I want you to read." I, I, so, and if you get a, a Shaila and a Gunis in the next Kufa, know that this is a very important issue. Someone else then wrote a whole letter, someone else with his own handwriting, with, from a different address. It was called Hey and Pifiois, where he writes about the conditions in Russia and what they're like, and, and so on. They, they sent this to, to Chutzlaretz. <coughs> and they wrote, and they, and they got the Goyim involved, the more enlightened Goyim. To, and they had, in England, they had the, 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 the English church and many others wrote, and the, and the president in America, they wrote very sharp letters to the Russian government that they can't believe how barbaric they are and this and that. The Russian government denied it, and then they sent them proof and stuff like that. And, and that at least forced them that overtly they shouldn't be able to, to you know, it stopped, the program stopped. 
but it took a lot of chachma to realize that you would have to come from the outside, not from the inside. Um, a- another very important area that Rabbi Sochanan was instrumental in putting the full weight of his person behind it was as follows. The, in, in, at, um, Rabbi Sol Salanta was able to get money from a wealthy man in Germany Avadi Lachman. It was actually Zachal There was a year of Shmuel Chavis in 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 Lithuania who decided to do some fatira. He he had a brother in Berlin who approached a wealthy man who was not so from, and got him inspired. This person sent a lot of money to Rabbi Sol Salanta to do something for Habatzas Taira. Rabbi Sol had a few ideas, and then he decided he's going to make a kailul, and he made the kavna kailul which was very Hashvig like to sit and learn and learning Musa was part of the curriculum and then they started making more Kailam also in different places and Rabbi Sol Salanta got Rabbi Yitzchak to be the head of the Kavnakolo and that, what, that meant an awful lot it meant that it had his sponsorship it wasn't only money that to raise money for it it was also um, the entire um, legitimacy of it because we'll see soon it was questioned. The coal got established, it flourished, they made branches in many different cities around. Rabitz Kohanan's son, Rabbi Hirsch Rabinowitz, was the head of it before. He went and became a Rav in some town, and Rabitz Lablaza became, instead of him, the head of the coal. Rabitz Lablaza was Salamta's biggest Talmud, it was a tremendous Talmud Chochem, and a big Tzadik of Bibal Musa. The Maskilim were furious at this whole thing. The Maskilim, um, first of all, had been trying desperately to make their own institutions for Abanim. It hadn't been successful. They at least thought that they had the Frum people on the ropes. The um, Velazhny Yeshiva, they were, they were fighting to close it. They kept telling the government that they're not following orders and so on and so forth, and the government closed it eventually. And here was something under their own nose coming up. More than that, they were upset at the Musa component. And the reason was because the Lajan Yeshiva had a policy where people learned very stark, and in the free time, um, it wasn't but with, with permission, but many, many of the Bachram pursued all sorts of, I guess we'll call it non-yeshivish activities, and they were studying Ascala, and a lot of them were, were, were not maminim, in a, and, and it was terrible. It was very destructive, and it destroyed the yeshiva in the end. It, the Balimusa fought against it. First of all, they threw out a bacha that they thought wasn't, you know, tohu kabaro. And, and they spoke about Avas Hashem, Yeras Hashem, Avodas Hashem. It was part of the Musa curriculum to talk about it. Maskilim were incensed and they started a major attack on the Kovnikolo. And they said, this crazy institution has attracted every fanatic and nutcase from all over Russia. And it used to be bad enough they had a place in Asia Shark and this and that. Now they're all over the place. It's 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 a, it's it's a destruction of Torah and it's a destruction of enlightenment, and he's a he's a ganif. They they said that the, the Kailal raised X amount of money. 
and only a small percentage is used to pay these people. The money goes to his pocket, Rabbi Sulbaz's pocket, and so on and so forth. Very, very sharp attacks. That these were the, these were the newspapers, the publications. Um, Rabbi Tzachal personally defended the Kolo. He wrote a letter, a long letter, that he had a committee of experts look at the books. These are the facts. The income is a third of what you think it is. These are the expenses. This is where the money goes. Everything is is and so so forth. and so on. And he wrote sharply a little bit. The masculine they couldn't attack Rabbi Zechariah. They wrote, you know, Rabbi Zechariah because he's so good-hearted and so naive. It's very easy for people to fool him. We have a lot more experience in public affairs and so on and so forth. And you know, Rabbi Zechariah was on the We have no problem with it. But Rabbi Blazer is a terrible person and so on and so forth. But he stood his ground, and they used, if you remember, the Alton Vadik we spoke about two or three months ago, um, they used him as an example for the nutcases that are floating around. People that call themselves from the world, I'm doing the world, and so on and so forth. And, and, but this was a big fight, um, and Baruch Hashem did not succeed. The Torah came from, the, from that, and, and many, many, and Hashem Dolan grew out of it. But this was part and parcel of, it, it, it was a very big fight. Al Kapodim, I want to finish with um, reading from his Tzavah. Um, in, in incredible. So, like I said before, the last thing he did was two or three nights before his nifta, he, he sat and wrote this tshuva for Naguna. Um, he wrote over here in his tzavah, he wrote a tzavah, and he writes, um, you know, he's uh, um, been in, in uh, you know, he, uh, he doesn't know what his end is, and the person needs to. It was written quite a while, quite a while before he was nifta. He said, first of all, he wants to give gratitude to the kahila that kept him so well and did so much for him. He asked that the kahila be mischazik in two things: in Shabbos and sending the kids to learn Torah. He says, I'm begging you to keep peace. You know how much I tried hard, and he was always involved in, in, in Machlokis and to try to settle him down. Many times I, I forego, th- I forewent things, I forfeited things because of the Akashalam. Even though I know people would whisper about me about it. I couldn't care because Chazal said how much Chazal praised Mailas Hashalom. I decided I'll be Mikhail Sholom no matter what. Um, he says. He asks people to keep the Kavna Kolol going. He said, the, you know, that's a, that's a big schus. He also, one of the things he was very involved in, and we should have spoken about it before, was kosher food for the Russian soldiers. The Russian army did not supply kosher food. It was a big deal to get them to allow kosher food, but the Jews had to pay for it. He was most enough for it to get the money for it and so on. Then he asked them to take his son as a rob, which they had anyway planned to doing. And then he says, um, I need to mention the following. Um, 
for many times when when um, I was involved in Rabbanis, there were many things that distressed me terribly and upset me terribly. Give me tremendous amount of patience. I never could have lasted as many years as I did. And the, the, the community could have been destroyed by all the fights. And people instead focused all the tightness on me, and I swallowed it all and didn't respond. And even though it left me very weak, and I did it to anyone who might have said something about me, might have hurt me, upset me in any way. Not only am I mochel them, I'm, I'm, I'm including them in the bracha that I'm giving the community. And I ask of you, just like I was moichel and mevata my covid and all these sum vava from from people. Just asking them that they should be mevatla das to to my son. And then finally, he says a bracha to them, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, credible. So he was a person who lived probably in one of the stormiest schools of Israel. He was revered by everyone, even though I, mean, I guess we, we don't know all the pratim of people as machlokas and fights and so on. But in, in the newspapers, you can't find in the newspapers would write horrible things. They're, 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 they're not newspapers; they're periodicals. They would write. They, 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 the vast majority of periodicals were terribly anti-terror. They had the greatest years I covered for Rebbe Um First of all, because it was Emis, his hasmad in terror was incredible, and everyone knew it. He he took nothing in this world. He he, he spent twenty hours a day learning. His 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 neimus, his messinus, his. Tremendous business for people, his is God Shalom. All all these things were made him like all the love. People would have pictures of the Vilna Goyen or Bitzchokhan. Those those were like standard two pictures together. That people would have them on on their on their walls and hang and so forth. Um, and it betsim it took Klal from one tukufa to another tukufa from basically the end of the 1700s to the to the beginning of the 1900s. That was the tukufa he spent and. The yeshivas that he left, um, the the Kavna Kail, which eventually which eventually became the the the, the, the yeshiva and became the, the, the source of the Muslim movement and so on, are, are really a legacy that he left over besides his his chuvis and his Muslim everything about him. Okay.